Revelation chapter 1. This is going to be introductory tonight. I'm going to read the first chapter and then we'll get into a little bit of context and introduce you to some of the elements of the lesson. Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom of the patient, kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars from his mouth, excuse me, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are seven churches. 
So may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Tonight's, as I mentioned a moment ago, tonight's going to be introductory. We're just going to kind of set some things in place so that the basic understanding will help us throughout the book of I've read quite a few commentaries, listened to several different teachers on this, and I don't want to, this is a kind of a rough word. I don't want to just regurgitate everything I've heard from them. Um, And I don't think I'm going to introduce anything new, but I want to try and walk a pathway through Revelation where we can apply its truth to our life where we can understand why it's there. We, we might can understand why it's there for the church in John's day, but what about us? So we're going to look tonight at the context of history. We're going to look at John himself. We're going to look at Patmos, where he was banished. He received a message. How do we know its importance and who is the messenger? The scripture in chapter 1 talks about a blessing. How special is it? How do we understand what that blessing is? I remember in my early youth, my pastor taught on Revelation, and I got really, personally, I really got excited when he read this. Everybody who reads this aloud gets a special blessing. I kept waiting for it. How do we understand what that means? So, we also want to look a little bit at the seven churches, the stars and the lampstands. What do they mean? What do they signify? What's special about them? So, looking at the context of history as we start, um, You should know it's the book of Revelation, not the book of Revelations. Uh, The word in the Greek is apocalypse or apocalypse, as it's properly pronounced in the Greek language. It doesn't mean end times. The book of Revelation falls in the theological category, category of eschatological teaching, the study of last things, but apocalypse does not mean end times. It means, it literally means the revealing. So what God is doing here is revealing to us what happened, what's happening, and what will happen. He is opening up understanding for everyone who would read it and believe it. What went wrong? And how is it going to be fixed? It's as simple as that. I heard another pastor of mine one day describe Revelation as the flight recorder of a crashed airplane. Every time one goes down, they look for that flight recorder. They want to find out what went wrong, how it happened, and what could be done about it to prevent it. Revelation does that very thing. It's not all looking forward. Some of it looks back, some of it looks at the present time, and... Some of it does look forward, but it tells us what to expect. 
the specific context of history was during the Roman Empire. Uh, and First Peter 5.13 and six times in Revelation. The Roman Empire is referred to as Babylon. Within the church, they understood when we write you a letter and we mention Babylon, we're talking about Rome. We're talking about the government. We're talking about the world. So that's basic that you need to understand. And you need to accept the fact that a lot of revelation gets to be kind of political. It gets to be a lot of us against them. There's a division. The world, the kingdom, the world, Babylon, and the kingdom of heaven. So as we look at Revelation and we get into the six references in Revelation about where it talks about Babylon, we'll understand why it mentions that. When you look at Roman Empire, particularly during since the time of Christ and through the time of John, there were four emperors who were really quite immoral. Tiberius, Caligula, Nero, and Domitian. Since we have children in the room, I could not even begin to describe how corrupt and how wicked three of these men were. The, thing, the perverted things they would do. And they were ruling the empire. Tiberius, Caligula, and Nero were all corrupt, immoral, and wicked. And then we get to Domitian. He was the first one to make the divine emperor of Rome, Lord and God. He wanted to be worshipped. This is speaking nothing of the Herodian dynasty over Israel. And they were quite corrupt themselves. But everything outside the kingdom of God, everything outside the church, is considered to be Babylon, the fallen. Everything, everyone within the church are God's people. John and Peter both referred to Rome as Babylon. The word comes, is derived all the way back to Genesis at the Tower of Babel. During Israel's fall, after their victory and after their monarchy was established and Solomon began the decline into apostasy, God finally raised up Babylon to conquer Jerusalem, to conquer Israel. So the city of the world, the city of the unbeliever, Babylon itself, all of the worldly powers have always been throughout the history of the church outside of God's people. And they have been kept by his divine will, by it, for his divine purpose, for his glory. And we need to recognize our identity is in God. 
Everything outside the church was Babylon. Everything outside the church, even today, is Babylon. On a Sunday morning, I'm preaching to you about Washington, D.C., and I happen to call it Babylon. You'll know what I'm talking about. I might try that some Sunday. John was one of the Lord's three closest apostles. Peter, James, and John were in his inner circle. And John was the only surviving, by the time he wrote Revelation, he was the only surviving apostle. He was the only one that died a natural death. He's responsible for John's gospel. He's responsible for three epistles, first second and third John, and he's responsible for Revelation. And you can see his style in all of them. He loves sevens and he loves threes. There were seven miracles recorded in John. There were seven I am's recorded in John. There are seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven plays. I mean, you see it in all of his writings. In his senior years, he became the bishop of Ephesus, or the pastor of Ephesus, the church at Ephesus. And this was during the reign of Domitian. Domitian reigned from A.D. 81 to 96. During his reign, as I mentioned before, Emperor Domitian started insisting everyone refer to him as Lord and God. And John was preaching against it. There he goes, preaching politics, holding his people faithful to the word. If you call this man Lord and God, you are bowing to an idol. He is nothing like God. He is nothing like Lord. We owe him respect as a ruler. That's it. He is not divine. We see some of his message in his epistles in 1 John 2, beginning at verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? 
This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Again, 1 John 4, verse 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. 2 John 1, 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the, the deceiver and the Antichrist. A lot of teachers, while they're in the book of Revelation, speak a lot about the Antichrist, but the term does not appear in the book of Revelation. It talks about the beast and the false prophet, and we'll get into that as we get there. But the Antichrist is not mentioned by that term in the book of Revelation. Because of John's faithful preaching, Domitian tried to put him to death. According to Tertullian, who lived from 155, John lived around 98 A.D. He died a couple of years after Domitian was assassinated. So Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, one of the faithful, who was born in 155 and died about 240, wrote about John. And according to his biography, John indeed was, Domitian tried to put him to death by boiling him in oil at the Latin gate outside of the Colosseum in Rome. But he miraculously survived it. It did him no harm. There, according to testimony, there was no blister. And since Domitian couldn't kill him, he just decided to banish him to the Isle of Patmos. Patmos was an ancient island. Well, ancient. All the islands are ancient. But according to Greek mythology, it was a very beautiful island, but it was underneath the sea. And Artemis, we've talked about Artemis in our study of Acts, along with another goddess named Selene, persuaded Zeus to help them raise this island out of the ocean. It was just a big crusty rock in John's day. When Romans came and conquered the area, they took it over as if this would make a great prison. So they turned it into a prison, stationed a garrison of guards there to keep the guards on the island. John was banished to the island, presumably for the rest of his life, but he outlived Domitian. It's known for its cliffs, its cliffs, it's known for its narrow shores. If you look at it on a map, it, it, it's shaped kind of like a seahorse. It's in the Aegean Sea. But there were quite a few prisoners who were kept there. So while John was there, for doing what he was supposed to do, preaching faithfully the Word of God, he had to contend with other prisoners there who could have taken his life. He had to fend for his own food, and there wasn't much growing on the island. 
he had friends in the church, in the ministry, who were bringing him supplies. And then he had to defend what they brought him. Today the island is a tourist destination. It's a pilgrimage place. They have chapels there. They have a cave where John was supposedly had supposedly lived and written the book of Revelation. But it just makes you think. The man was doing what he was told to do by God. And he was persecuted. They tried to kill him. And he was banished. I have a friend in ministry... Well, he's temporarily out of ministry by his choice. He's a pastor in Canada who was in another denomination. When this pandemic started, Canada buckled down harder than the United States, and they were telling churches that you can meet, but you can only have 10 people in attendance. Steve ignored it. And the ten people who came in attendance had to wear the mask. Steve ignored it. They just kept on meeting as usual. And then the government police started coming around, checking upon them, and are you in compliance? Are you doing what we asked? They hadn't been to Steve's church yet they had been to another church in the same denomination Steve knew the pastor and the pastor happens well yes we are in compliance we are doing what we've been asked but you need to go over there to Steve Richardson's church they're not in compliance Steve was being faithful to the Lord doing what God called him to do not bowing down to government mandates Because he thought they were restrictive, it limited the people who were coming to church, he was not going to do that. Because we are called as children of God to worship our Lord and Savior. He was cited, he was fined, he faced the threat of imprisonment for at least two years, plus, not either or, it's both and, a $600,000 fine. And for about nine months, he was struggling with that stress on his head for doing what the Lord had called him to do. A small group of congregation members who were in that church where he pastored. He lost that. His denomination kicked him out. They were going to discipline him for disobeying the government, and he withdrew from them and started another little congregation. And that's stressful in and of itself. And finally, his court date came up last November and uh, he came before the judge, and the judge, the judge read his charges and 
said, are you going to continue in this? And he was honest. He said, Judge, I've got to tell you right now, I can't say that I can comply. I understand why the state wants to do this, but I don't believe the state has that authority over the church. The judge is, was either under the spiritual influence of thousands of people's prayers or the church, the judge may have been a believer. He just gave him a verbal reprimand, charged him $3,000 and sent him home. He wasn't boiled in oil or banished, but, but essentially that much stress overwhelmed him. And he's on a one-year sabbatical right now. He's, he's kind of gone into self-banishment to get some rest. But when pastors and churches are persecuted, they need to trust the Lord. 139th Psalm is one of my favorites. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. We can be in the darkest place, the most depressed place, and know that God is there with us. So when Revelation reveals what the early church dealt with, when John shows us what God showed him, we're going to see parallels, but what was happening then is what is happening now. All of this oppression, all of this government control, all of this forced restrictions on places to go and forced restrictions on the economy, all of that's been done nationally. Previously to World War II in Germany. It's been done in the communist countries, the Socialist Republic of the Soviet Union, and in China. But it's been done in Venezuela. It is now being done in Sri Lanka. But really, this is the first time we've ever seen it worldwide. And if all of the people at once complied, it would be worse off now than it is. So, we may not get as far as we wanted to tonight, but the message. We've looked at John, we've looked at Patmos, we've looked at the history, we've looked at Rome. Revelation 1. And one and two. Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. I've seen a lot of people say, oh, there's, there's the purpose of 
Revelation. He's going to show us what's about to take place. We'll get to that. We're, we're going to clarify that as we go on. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. We need to play a little bit. Well, I don't want to use the word play, but we need to explain a little bit about the language. John here uses the word angel. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. God the Father, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. God the Father gave him, God the Son, Jesus Christ, to show to his servants. His servant was John and even the seven churches. The things that soon must take place. And we'll talk about what things will take place soon. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. He, God the Father, made it known by sending his angel. Jesus is not an angel. For some reason, the translators here took the word angelos and translated angel. You might think, well, that sounds like angel. Other places in Scripture, it's translated messenger, because that's what it means. In Matthew 11:10, Lord Jesus himself, while he walked this earth, while he ministered here in the flesh, was talking about John the Baptist. For this is he whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger, Angelos, before your face, who will prepare your way before you. He was talking about John the Baptist. There it's translated messenger. I don't know why the interpreter translates it angel here. Second Corinthians 12, 7. The Apostle Paul talking about prayer and talking about struggling with weaknesses in the flesh. At, te at, at lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan. An angelos of Satan. It's used other places in Scripture translated messenger, but here it's translated angel. So we don't want to put too much weight on this one word in Revelation. He is talking about God's messenger. He sent his own son to John to give John the message that comes in the book. The whole book is the message. And about the things that must soon take place, we look at Revelation 1.19 for clarity. The Lord himself, when he came to John, shining and glorified the body. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. The things that soon must take place are things that revolve around the things that you have seen, the things that are, and the things that are to take place. It's all encompassing, and we will get into that. 
as we study this together. Revelation 1.3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, for the time is near. This was a message that was supposed to be sent to the seven churches. It was written down and read to the congregations there. So it is talking about giving them knowledge of God's truth and blessing their lives. In the things that have been, the things that are, and the things that soon take place are very primarily first specifically ordained to be for those seven churches. And once we get there, we will see that clearly. Revelation 1.4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And, oh, that's the Holy Spirit. Seven spirits, we can take you back to Isaiah where the Holy Spirit is described in such a way so the triune God is involved in this message as well. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him in all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. There's a lot of controversy around the book of Revelation because there's over the past 200 years, yeah, it's coming up on 200 years, very soon, J.N. Darby began teaching this around 1830, 1820, 1830, this idea called dispensationalism, where God takes, where he, ta he took scriptures from Genesis to Revelation and divided the context of parts of scripture to seven what he called dispensations or age ages uh, and th this is we'll get, I'm running out of time so we'll get in order this next week but this is where we get the uh, Tim LaHaye's novels and films about the tribulation and the second coming of the Lord and I don't want to be too critical. I used to be a dispensationalist, so I, I know that they are believers, but they're just a little bit confused. They talk about a rapture where God comes halfway, calls his church out, and then waits another seven years for the tribulation to take place, and then he comes again. They separate the rapture from the second coming. 
But here John says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. He doesn't mention anything about a secret rapture, a secret coming. He only talks about God, Christ's final appearance in judgment. So as we move further into the book, we're going to talk a little bit about the different perspectives, the different understandings. There's premillennial tribulation, there's or historical premillennial idea. It, it all evolves around when do you think the Lord's going to come and when is the millennial kingdom? There's the pre-trib rapture or the pre-tribulation rapture, the dispensationalists. They believe that the rapture is going to come, the Lord's going to take his church out, there will be seven years of tribulation, he'll come again to put an end to the suffering, put an end to the tribulation, and then establish a, a literal 1,000-year reign on the earth. And at the end of that 1,000-year reign, I might be getting out of the camera, he releases Satan again to torment the nations. And then he puts it all in and judges everyone and sends Satan off in chains to hell, along with all of the lost. and then establishes the eternal state where their time is no more and everyone is in the new heaven and the new earth. And then there are the historical pre-mill, which they're similar except they may not believe in a rapture. They just only know that there is a second coming and then a literal 1,000 year reign on this earth. And then there is the awe-mill. Awe is a negation of a millennium. The all-mill people do not, they don't deny that there is a millennial kingdom. They just don't believe that it is a literal 1,000 years. And we'll get into that a little bit more and explain why once we're into Revelation. I'm just giving you a preview. The all-mill believes that as the church moves through history, the persecution will increase before the second coming. Then there is the post, and, and since at the time of the second coming, since the amillennial believes that the kingdom reign is the church age that Christ established before he ascended into heaven, then after that judgment of the second coming, there is the eternal state. It's all over. I like what C.S. Lewis once wrote, when the author steps out on stage, the play is over. It's a wonderful statement. And then there are the post-mill, and they're very similar to the all-mill, except the post-mill are kind of positive. They believe that the church and the evangelism of the church is going to make everything better and better in the world and escort in the millennial kingdom where Christ will reign for a thousand years. And we'll get into that a little bit more as we move in to the book of Revelation. I still have to look at, I won't do it tonight, but I still have to look at the, the Lord himself 
his appearance before John, the seven stars and the seven golden lampstands, what are they? What's that all about? Why is it important? Why are they described that way? But I also want to give you an opportunity to ask any question. You can ask me anything, even if it's something I don't haven't talked about tonight. I might get into it later, but I'll be happy to try and answer it now. Are there any questions so far? No. Those churches are no more. Some of them, well, there's a lot of reasons. Some of them just died off in because of poor preaching and teaching. Some of them, uh, they found the foundation of a couple of them, foundations of a couple of them. They used to be in port cities where a lot of uh, sailing vessels would come in to do trade. And a lot of those cities around them died because the bays and the harbors just filled up with silt and sailing boats couldn't get in there. So when the economy died off and the merchants went away, there was no one to keep the church open. Um, so there are a lot of reasons these churches died off. But the seven churches of Ephesus are no longer there. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes. Yeah, we'll see that next week. Is this helpful? Okay. All right. Thank you. That's that's encouraging. I just I just want to make sure I'm okay. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this time that we share together. We pray that you might feed our souls this week on what we understand of your word. Help us with what we learn to be faithful to you. As we prayed earlier, may it encourage us, may it equip us, may it strengthen us. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.